Well, good evening, everyone. I already see all the shocked faces right now. I'm not Ed Wildy, right? I'm not as good looking as Ed. I'm not as smart as Ed. So if you guys are surprised that he's not uh, here today, um, he asked me a few days ago if I can, if I can um, uh, teach tonight for him. So that's why we're here, okay? All right. What's well, a pleasure to be with you and... I hope that tonight, it's really more of an informal teaching time uh, tonight, and um, I hope that it's going to be an encouragement to you, kind of the topic that we're going to be discussing. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. All right. And let me open our time up in prayer, okay? Father, we thank you so much uh, once again for... As we learn this morning, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth personified. We thank you that he came, that he lived the life that we could never live, fulfilling your perfect will in every aspect. We thank you for his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand. And we know that because he lives, we have hope. We thank you so much. That we have an opportunity to be together tonight because we have we are united to our Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that we are in union with one another. So grateful, Lord. I pray that these times would be cherished, where we are able to corporately sing together, sing praises unto you. That these times would be cherished when we are able to open up your word and hear you speak to us. Pray that that might happen tonight, Lord, that we might be motivated, encouraged, convicted, and recognize that we are one body that is on a mission on this earth. So we ask you all these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen. 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 Well, let me read Matthew chapter 28. And uh, I'm going to start in verse 16. If you're there, just follow with me. Matthew 28 verse 16 says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." What do we call the last three verses, famous title for those verses? The Great Commission, right? The Great Commission. That is what life is really about for we who are believers, who are professing believers. It's all about the Great Commission. I don't know about you, but I am rarely um, shocked by anything that I hear in the news these days. Um, There's just so much corruption uh, going on, not only in our country, but around the world. But once in a while, I get, I get floored by particular news. And the other day, I actually read um, a, an excerpt uh, from, the, from CNN, I believe it was, where um, they talked about the fact that a mother in Ghana, basically, I don't know what the circumstances were, but she basically abandoned her little baby girl and left her, uh, basically left her out in the cold. And um, uh, thankfully, I think that 
some watchdog or whatever actually found the baby, and through that they actually found this baby and were able to, to care for her. And it seems that these days, if you're, if you're reading the news, that more and more mothers are doing that, abandoning babies just all over the place, not only here but in other countries. And it's a sad thing. And it shocks you because this is not something that we expect from a mother, right? We don't expect a mother. It's like the greatest symbol of love and devotion a mother has for her children. We don't expect a mother to do something like this, to abandon her child. Um, Normal loving behavior from a mother is that she would take that newborn baby, feed it and clothe it and nurse it and... Make sure that she is nourishing that baby. You who are mothers know that. You don't ever expect that type of activity of abandoning a child to um, uh, be normal behavior from a mother. And so physically, mentally, and emotionally, this baby with proper care will grow up. But that baby needs to be nurtured. And beloved... One of the things that I've been doing of late and just kind of living in this world is thinking about this whole issue of discipleship. And um, that nourishing care, that investing into one another that should be normal, that should be um, really a activity that we are devoted to and committed to. I think many of our churches are very deficient in terms of biblical discipleship. Would you agree? Even as we're going to look at uh, here tonight... So similar to what could have happened to this baby, if somebody doesn't rescue this baby and take care of that baby and nourish that baby, you know, we have a lot of spiritual babies in the church. Spiritual babies who are very immature. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean that with a heart of deep concern as a pastor. Um, People are not being nourished like they ought to be. Um, And we can talk about the personal choices, again, that people make. That people can be very individualistic and not really pursue others. uh, Not really invite others into their lives so that there is discipleship taking place. Somebody's investing into us. And by the same token, we could be very selfish and not really be engaging other people. Investing our lives into others. So we can look at that. But also... If we don't have, we're not cultivating in our body, specifically about uh, speaking of Calvary, if we're not cultivating that type of relentless discipleship amongst us, then we are not going to be equipped as we ought to be, as believers. So we can look at both sides of this. The importance of discipleship cannot be overstated. And I've been thinking about this crucial issue so much. Even before uh, coming on staff here at Calvary, I had the privilege of doing that uh, March 1st of this year, as many of you guys know. But before that, just being having the opportunity to travel to other countries, to visit multiple churches here in, in, in the States, and seeing that really, um, I know I touch upon international contexts a lot. And somebody the other day even mentioned, well, we're not in international contexts here. So, well, you know what? That's exactly why we need to talk about international contexts. Because we can get caught up in our bubble here in the States so much that we begin to define and think about ministry through our American lenses. Would you agree with that? Um, honestly, in the travels that I've done, third world countries where they keep ministry and life so simple and basic, they have a greater 
understanding of the concept of discipleship than many of our American churches. It's just natural, normal life for them. To be in, in the lives of one another, to, to cultivate a, an environment of family, to invest into one another. And it's not a one-hour-a-week coffee meeting, and they call that discipleship. No. They're in each other's lives. And they have jobs the way that we have jobs. In fact, they have two, three jobs sometimes. Pastors don't get the privilege like we get here at Calvary to be paid. They, uh, they might receive some kind of an offering from the church, but they might be working two or three jobs themselves. So they have such a, a greater um, understanding, I think, of this concept of discipleship. And I'm so burdened that we together as a church family understand and even be reminded even more so tonight of what biblical discipleship actually is. I recognize that many of you are living lives where you are very faithful in this area. And I'm so thankful, even as I look around in this room, some of the ways that many of you are sacrificing for one another and you're caring for one another. I want to affirm that uh, in your life. And I would say excel still more in that in this, um, in your cultivating of biblical relationships. But I want us to be challenged tonight. If we're professing believers, listen, if we profess Christ here tonight, we have a specific mission to fulfill on this earth, whether we fully recognize it or not. If you profess to know Christ, you are a disciple. You are a follower of Christ. And you have a mission on this earth. And I want us to talk about this tonight. Some of these things might be very basic. That's okay. They're going to be reminders for us. I hope that as we get into some of these basic issues, that we would be encouraged and motivated anew and maybe refocus once again to what our main mission for being on this earth is. And if you are not a believer, I don't ever want to assume in any context that everybody's in Christ, that everybody's a follower of Christ. If you are not a Christian, that you might understand tonight in a greater way perhaps what, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I want to talk tonight about biblical discipleship. What is biblical discipleship? And this is a very general, broad overview. Okay, I'd love to do even a, great, a, a longer series on this at some point in the future, but I just want to touch upon the big concepts. Okay, So first of all, we see here the Great Commission in the verses that we read. And as I said, many Christians have lost sight of this Great Commission and live as if this is the Great Omission instead. Right? That means that we are not making other disciples. We're not reproducing ourselves as we ought to. We are not following the greatest command that Jesus gave right before He ascended. These were some of His final words to His disciples. And by extension, anyone else who has ever become a disciple of Christ, this is our main mission right here. This is what it's all about. And by the way, the Great Commission isn't just for pastors and elders or so-called mature Christians in the church, is it? It's for every single one of us. If you are, a prof- you are a professing believer tonight, this is what life is all about here. All right? So first of all, I want to talk about what this concept of discipleship. The concept of discipleship, if you're taking notes. What is a disciple? I think if we're going to talk about discipleship, we need to define that term first. What does it mean to be a disciple? Many of you know this. The term disciple comes from a Greek word, mathetes. 
which basically means a learner, a follower of someone. A disciple is one who learns and, listen, advocates the teachings of another. For example, if that goes for any, any kind of profession as well. If you are striving to be a doctor, um, you might go through study and you're going to grow in your knowledge of medicine and all the intricacies of medicine. But eventually you get to a point where you have to sit under a tutor, right? Another doctor and watch this doctor perform his duties and apply everything that you know now to act into action. You have this mentor. In a sense, you can say that you are a disciple of this particular doctor. He is mentoring you. You're learning from him. Firemen, same thing. I have a brother-in-law who is a fireman. Watching him for many years before he married my sister, he would learn and read a lot, every, all the intricacies of what it means to be a fireman. Eventually, he had to make his way over to the fire station and go with the firemen and learn from them and ride in the truck with them. So he was learning from them. He was learning the trade of being a fireman. You know, it's very similar as believers, is it not? Very, very similar. Now, biblically, a disciple, a Christian, is a person, first of all, there are three main components, okay? When we look at God's Word, a disciple, first of all, is a person who has repented of his or her sins and confesses Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior. That is the most basic thing of what it means to be a disciple. You are a person who has repented of your sins and you confess Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior. But secondly, you are actively following Christ. That is very much according to the book of James. I've been studying that book for a few years. Really, James, what he's doing there is he's just following after the pattern of his brother Jesus. Talking about what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ and all of the implications practically for being a follower of Christ. How you respond to trials. How you respond to the Word of God in obedience. How you respond to others and relate to others. All of the implications of what it means to actively follow Christ are right there. So first of all, you repent of your sins. You confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Secondly, you're actively following Christ. And listen, because we really, really dismiss this third part. Thirdly, biblically, a disciple is one whose life is devoted to making him known to others in order that they might follow the risen Christ. This follower is a person who is propagating the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're proclaiming and bearing witness to His person and His saving work in your life with the goal of making other followers of Christ. Amen? We want to see that. We spent two days this Friday night and Saturday with the music ministry, ministering together. And we learned of this heavenly scene in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And we talked about this heavenly choir that is seen growing and growing and growing. And this heavenly choir with multitudes, myriads and myriads of angels. A number that can't be counted. And there's this great heavenly choir. How much more if we are disciples of Christ and we love the Lord Jesus Christ and He's the one that we profess to be devoted to? Do we want others to be added to that heavenly choir? Do we not? We want to see others following the Lord Jesus Christ. One day we want to see everybody up in heaven worshiping the Lord of glory. 
So we must be propagating His name, preaching and teaching Christ so that we might see others bow the knee to Him. If you truly embrace, beloved, the One who has done so much for you, you want to see others follow Him. Amen? That's what you want to see. You want to see others added to this heavenly choir. You will try to reproduce yourself. Now, so that's what a disciple is. One who confesses Jesus as risen Lord and Savior, actively is pursuing Christ, and your life is devoted to making Him known unto others that they might follow Him as well. Okay. Now, what is biblical discipleship then? What is biblical discipleship? And I want to tell you, first of all, there's a number of things that I can say here, but I'm going to keep it, I'm going to narrow it down to three. First of all, what biblical discipleship is not. Alright? And then I'm going to define what it is. Biblical discipleship is not, or does not equal, leadership training. Discipleship is intricately related and connected to leadership training, but distinct and separate. How so? Every Christian, all Christians are disciples, are followers of Christ, and we are all in the process of discipleship. All of us. But from these disciples, from amongst us, there will be those who will surface who are called to lead in the church, who must be qualified to lead in the church. So they're intricately related, but they are not the same. Each and every one of us as Christians is in the process of discipleship. It's like being a part of the military. You enlist for the military, you are a soldier. But just because you're a soldier, that doesn't mean that you're a sergeant or a general. It goes the same for Christianity, right? All of us are in this process of discipleship. We are disciples, but not all of us will be called to lead in the church. Now secondly, biblical discipleship is not referring to a breed of super-Christians. All true believers are a work in progress. Amen? We are all in a process of discipleship. All Christians are at various levels of maturity. No one is a finished product. I've talked to many, many Christians who have this idea that, you know what, that's great that you're committed to discipleship and others are. That's good for you guys. Wait a minute. You are a disciple. You need to have the same vision and the same mission here on earth to be making other disciples. Amen? It's not some, some, not referring to some elite class of believers that should be committed to making other disciples or to being a faithful disciple. That's all of our task. That, that is the mission of all of us. Thirdly, biblical discipleship is, does not refer to each of us as believers taking people under our wings and controlling them like puppets. What do I mean by that? Discipleship, listen, has as its goal to help others and that we ourselves as disciples might become devoted lovers, followers, and proclaimers of one person. And that's who? The Lord Jesus Christ. See? It's all about Him. We do not make make disciples, in other words, so that they become our robots or our projects. Our tools for accomplishing our agendas, do we? That's not what biblical discipleship is all about. We are not proclaiming Christ so that we make them little campuses running around. Heaven forbid. Especially because of the looks. Amen to that. Thanks. Thanks, John. 
So we are not trying to reproduce ourselves in and of itself. Paul said, what? Be imitators of me as I am of who? Of Christ. In that sense, yes. If we are following Christ and we are devoted to Christ, yes. We call others to follow our example as we're pursuing Christ on that road. But we are not in the business of controlling people so that we can run our own personal agendas and objectives. We are not doing that. It's all about Christ. It's all about exalting Him, right? It's all about the risen Savior. And there's so much manipulation that takes place in the name of discipleship in churches. Maybe you've been exposed to some of that. The priority is to reproduce me, not Jesus necessarily. Somebody has to match up to my standards and what I think a Christian ought to look like rather than somebody looking like Christ, right? We see a lot of this. I'll never forget visiting a church here in Southern California with my previous ministry. We were visiting and evaluating different churches. And we get to this one place and the two leaders, the two pastors, hadn't shown up yet. We showed up a little bit early. We did that intentionally many times because we really wanted to evaluate the ministry, not necessarily even with the leaders there. We wanted to see how they ran things. So I'm talking to a group of people, myself and another guy, and I start interacting in particular with three college students. And we start talking, and these college students are telling me about themselves and how the Lord saved them and their ministry. And, they're, and they get, start getting really excited, just very passionate about what they believe. So they were joyful, sitting there, very engaged. And all of a sudden, the two pastors walk in through the door. And they shut down. <laughs> Completely a different story. They shut down. They stopped speaking. They stopped engaging us. They stopped talking about themselves and what they're passionate about and what they want to do for the Lord. And it became very, very apparent that what these two pastors were doing is really they were trying to just control these guys. There's a group, a movement called G12. And it's got... There are different... Um, there are extreme branches of this G12 movement. And basically what it is, is you take on 12 disciples and you teach them everything that you know. And many times what happens in some of these extreme cases is the guy, the pastor, is basically creating a little hymn. And these, two, these, these college students in this church were the objects of these men's manipulation. See? That is happening in many churches, beloved. Maybe not extreme versions like that. But that happens even amongst us if we're not careful. That it becomes less and less about Christ and more about ourselves. And we need to be very careful. So that is not biblical discipleship. You remove the person of Christ from the equation and all of a sudden we're using tactics that were never meant to be utilized. What is biblical discipleship then? What is biblical discipleship? Here it is if you're taking notes. Discipleship essentially is the process that a person enters upon conversion, the process of growing and maturing as a devoted lover, learner, follower, and proclaimer of Christ. Discipleship is the process of growing and maturing as a devoted lover, learner, follower, and proclaimer of Christ. And again, it has everything to do with Him. It has everything to do with magnifying Christ in our lives and in the lives of others. We want to see Christ formed in people. All Christians, true believers, enter this process upon conversion, i.e. the new birth. 
And you ask, how for how long? For how long? Until we're perfect. Right? We're in this process of discipleship until we're perfected or Christ returns. See? In the meantime, Christ's disciples are commanded to be devoted followers of Christ as we anticipate our King's return. This is an ongoing, lifelong process as long as we are here in this body. Until the very end, when, whenever God so chooses to bring all of this to completion. So it's so, so important. These things are very basic things, I, I realize. But I think we need to be reminded time and time again of what this means and how we need to refocus our mission, beloved. I need this just as much as you do. Now secondly, I want us to see the importance of discipleship. The importance of discipleship. Now that we have defined what a disciple is very basically and generally, why is discipleship important? This making of disciples. And I want you to see first and foremost that discipleship was prominent in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship was prominent in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want some motivation for why you ought to be committed to this, all you have to do is to look at the perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ and how He lived and what He did. That's what we need to do. When on earth, Christ had the making of disciples as His foremost priority. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And I want to show you this. By this time, Jesus has been with His disciples three plus years. And it is very, very interesting. If you read the Gospel accounts, Jesus was performing great works. He was speaking great words to the people. But He was always very, very careful because the people expected a very different Messiah, didn't they? They expected one who would come and bring somewhat of a revolution and rebel against the Romans or free them from the Roman government. He was a very different kind of Messiah. Jesus was very careful because He knew the multitudes were fickle and naive. So he, was, he almost had a, a, sh, a, sh, a sh, shush, shush attitude towards talking about who he was and his identity because of the fickle multitudes. But we get to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following, and I want you to see three things that happen here. Christ, first of all, reveals his person. He revealed his person. He gets to the point here in chapter 8, verses 27 and following, where now he's going to explicitly ask. Those who are His disciples concerning His identity. Verse 27, Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way He questioned His disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? What? I'm sure His disciples were very surprised. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't ever really, hadn't alluded to his identity before, but now he explicitly is asking, what is the popular opinion about me? It must have surprised them. Because Jesus didn't really function as if he really cared what the multitudes thought of him like that. Now he explicitly asks, what's the popular opinion concerning me? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued 
And this is where he gets real pinpointed now with his disciples. Everything comes to a halt now. Everything that Jesus has said, the things that he has done, the great wonders that he has performed now, come down to this. And this is the greatest question that concerns all of mankind. It is a matter of eternal destiny. Who you believe Jesus to be determines where you will spend eternity, right? Notice. Verse 29, and he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. In other words, you're the Messiah. I.e., you're the King. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Everything that Jesus had done came to a halt here. He wanted to know, who do you guys believe that I am? Do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe in my wonders, in my words, in my identity? What I want you to see is that Christ, in His ministry, revealed His person. That was the most important thing that He was doing. Who He is. The great question that people must answer. In the Gospels, we see Him teaching His disciples, both through His words and His works, who He was, in order that they might follow Him. And if they understood that He was the Messiah, then they must follow Him and walk in obedience to Him and tell others about who He was. See? Secondly, I want you to see that Christ revealed His purpose. Why He came. Not only His person, but His purpose. Why He came. Notice verse 31. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. By the way, he does this three different times in the book of Mark. Chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, he does it again. He talks about his suffering openly with them. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, he, does, he speaks about his suffering openly. He wants to make it very clear. You guys need to understand that I am here. Maybe not the king that you expected, but this is what I came to do from before the foundation of the world. To suffer, to die, but I will rise again. See? Jesus revealed His purpose, why He came. Thirdly, notice, Christ revealed His demands. His demands. What the cost is of following after Him. Notice verse 34. And He summoned the crowd with His disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Now let me ask you this. If you want to continue to propagate your name to these multitudes who are coming, who are here, who are gathering, this is not a very seeker-friendly message, is it? He makes it very clear. You want to follow after Me? Here's the cost. It will cost you your life. You must be completely committed and devoted to Me. You must be willing to take up your cross daily. You must repent of your sins, say no to self, 
And now all of a sudden, my priorities and my purposes become primary in your life. Jesus made it very clear what His demands were. That it would cost us our life to follow after Him. To be disciples of Him. And He was not giving people an option to follow, by the way. His call to follow was a command. He said, follow Me. In Matthew 4.19, chapter 8, verse 22, the Lord Jesus commanded an immediate turning from self-pursuits to turning toward Him, His purposes and His mission. There's no easy believism here, is there? I am Lord, you follow after Me. I am King, you follow after Me. And it will cost you everything. By the way, He also told them that they should arm themselves with the expectation that they would suffer. Did He not? That is so difficult for us to understand. Myself included. That if we are going to be committed to the cause of Christ here on this earth and be faithful disciples of Him, we will suffer, will we not? That's why Paul says in Philippians 1.29 and 30, For to you it has been granted... This grace has been given to you. It has been granted not only to believe in Him, but also to what? Suffer for His sake. That's the price of following after Christ, of being a faithful disciple of Christ. So Christ revealed His person, who He is. He revealed His purpose, why He came. And He revealed His demands, what the cost is of following after Him. But fourthly, listen. Christ revealed His commission. Christ revealed His commission. You know, Matthew chapter 28 is not the first time that He actually commissions His disciples. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter uh, 10. Matthew chapter 10. And I want you to see this. And the mercy and the compassion of our Lord that we need to be imitating as well, beloved, in this issue of making disciples. Look at chapter 9, verse 35. I'll begin there. Matthew 9.35 Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And notice, if He is doing this type of ministry, notice His response, heartfelt, of deep concern in verse 36. And seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Is that our heart? Is that our heart when we see the godless generation in which we live? Is that our heart when we read the news and the newspapers, beloved? A heart of compassion and mercy like that? Like our Lord had? I think if we're honest, we're very deficient in that mercy and grace, aren't we? And having that kind of heartfelt compassion. But notice, He responds to to what He's seen with compassion. And He's... He's watching these people as if they're without a shepherd. And He responds by giving His disciples a vision of what could be. He says in verse 37, Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. Oh, that we had that kind of heart. Amen? Amen. To look at the needs in this world and and the godless society in which we live, beloved, and have a vision for what could be. He calls them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out others into the harvest. As a body, we need to be thinking like that. We need to have compassion and mercy to an unbelieving gener- for an unbelieving generation and respond. And He does this. And in chapter 10, verse 1, He says, Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, and He names them. But He, he feels compassion for the people, mercy. He responds by calling them to pray and to depend upon the Lord of the harvest. And then they re- he, he, he engages His disciples and sends them out. There's action that follows. Jesus is compassionate concern. So Jesus understood His primary mission. And then He's training His disciples to pursue that same mission as well. See? He wants them to understand who He is. He wants them to understand the cost of following or or the purpose why He came. His demands for following after Him. And He wants them to catch a vision of what could be. Get out there and you guys now. Here's the baton. You go. That is what Jesus does. And in case you are wondering, what in the world does all this have to do with me? I hope none of us are there. If you are a Christian, this has everything to do with you and I. Everything. This dictates the way that we live life, does it not? If this, is, this was our Lord's mission, and this was the mission of the apostles, and then those who were saved in the book of Acts, then this is our mission as well, to make disciples. Beloved, listen, we are not just here to raise a family in and of itself. We can be faithful followers of Christ by being godly husbands, godly mothers, godly grandmothers, godly grandparents, godly children. We can be faithful disciples of Christ in that way. But that's not being a perfect family on this earth is not the end goal in and of itself, is it? It's about the gospel, it's about Christ. That He would be exalted and magnified in our life. It's not about keeping your profession in and of itself. It's about working with your hands. Doing the best that you can in your job environment. Being the best businessman or businesswoman that you can possibly be. And that people, the unbelieving world, will look at you and ask you, why do you work like that? Well, let me tell you why. Let me tell you about the Christ that I serve. It's about the Gospel. There's a greater purpose There's a bigger picture in everything that we're doing, no matter what you're doing in life right now. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what it's about. However, if you're striving to love and to know and obey the Lord Jesus, and you're living aware of your mission in your work environment, in your pursuit of your profession, in your family, and being faithful there in your service to Christ and His people... You're doing well, and I want to commend you for that. But I think we need to examine this area of our life, do we not? This is where it all, where it all comes down to.
Our life must be so compelling to an unbelieving world that they're going to ask you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. That's how we ought to be living life, no matter what context we find ourselves in. And we know, as we've been learning on Sunday mornings, that this impact for the Gospel begins with the way that we love one another in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Galatians 6, 9-10 through We are doing good unto all people, especially to those who are the household of the faith. Doing what is intrinsically good and beneficial for everyone, especially to those of the family of the faith. It flows from the way that we love one another in this body, beloved, to an unbelieving world. When we go and impact other places and and to Honduras or to New Zealand or wherever we go, that we are impacting other believers and going out and sharing the Gospel of Christ. See? So we see that we must be devoted to this type of discipleship because it was prominent in the life and ministry of Christ first and foremost. But secondly, I want you to see this. Discipleship was prominent in the life and ministry of the apostles. And we don't have time to get into all of these passages. But you know, as you read the book of Acts, Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, what is he doing? He begins to preach Christ. Talk about the suffering Christ, the risen Christ. You see, sermons proclaiming the name of Christ. Why? So that the Spirit of God would work in the hearts of the listeners and people would come to know Christ. So what were, they, what were the apostles concerned about? If Jesus was revealing Himself and His person, and we saw in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following that He explicitly wants His disciples to know who He is, what are the apostles concerned about in the book of Acts? That people would understand Christ and His person. That He's the Messiah. The one that's been promised from long ages. The one who has come and lived the life you could never live. Suffering the death you deserved. They preached the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Christ in your place. For your sins. Though unblemished and spotless Himself. So the apostles preached Christ. And many believed and became followers of Christ. We have seven, seven different progress reports in the book of Acts. Progress reports of how the Gospel kept growing and the Word of God kept growing and growing and growing as the apostles and others were bearing witness of Christ's person. Not only that, but the apostles taught Christ. They taught, they taught doctrine so that believers, who had been, people who had been converted, heard and grew in the knowledge of Christ. So they taught doctrine. How do we know that? Because we have the epistles, do we not? We see the letters that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We see the letters. The apostles taught doctrine. They were instilling precious knowledge to those who had believed so that they might grow and mature into Christ's likeness. And we can read the letters of these men and see how they poured their lives out. They not only taught doctrine, but the Apostles coupled with the teaching, you know what they did? They modeled Christ. So that believers watched and grew as devoted followers of Christ, watching the example of the apostles. We get a beautiful picture of that in Acts chapter 20. Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders. 
He's saying, I'm not going to potentially see you again. He's going to stand before the highest Roman authorities. And what does He say? You know about my testimony while amongst you. How I lived. I walked with integrity amongst you. I taught you the whole counsel of God. So they modeled the teaching so that others watched and grew as devoted followers of Christ. See, so the pattern, what I'm getting at is that the pattern and ministry of the apostles was no different than Christ's, was it? Christ was, a, was in person the one who they preached and they pointed back to. This is who He is. The one who walked amongst us. But they did the same thing. You know what? They ran the race. They took the baton from Christ. And they ran. And then, the apostles passed on the baton to many other disciples in the early church, as we see in the book of Acts. So not only was discipleship prominent in the life and ministry of our Lord, in the life and ministry of the apostles, but it was prominent in the life and ministry of the early church, of those whom the Lord saved. And again, we see in the book of Acts, one of the most healthy things that you can do to remind yourself in the midst of all of the difficulties of life is to see the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God's work in the book of Acts in the lives of people. As the person of Christ is proclaimed, as people are being called to repentance and a confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior, and the Spirit of God does amazing Amazing work in the hearts and lives of people. And you see the early church spending time together. You see them proclaiming Christ unashamedly over and over again because they knew they were so compelled by the message of Christ and everything that He had spoken through His apostles that they could do nothing else but to proclaim Him. Is that our heart, beloved? This is challenging to my heart. Is this what Campus Hernandez is about right here? Making Christ known. Is this what your life is about? Is this how you're living your life? You don't need to be a pastor to do that, do you? No. In whatever context God has you, how are you walking faithfully as a follower of Christ and proclaiming the name of Christ so that others follow Him? Now, This third point here, I want to talk a little bit about the process of discipleship, just in a very general way. And this information is nothing new to any of you. Okay? So I am aware of that. The process of discipleship. What is the main command in the Great Commission? Anybody, just yell it out. Making disciples, right? Making disciples. Making disciples. Now we know that this assumes that we are going to do what first and foremost? Evangelize, right? We are going to proclaim Christ, in other words. That is the beginning stage. We proclaim Christ. We evangelize. And Elder Bob Powell says amen to that, right? That is the beginning stage. If we are not telling people about Christ, we know God is sovereign, but He calls us to aggressively pursue others, right? How are people going to know about Christ as far as it depends upon us? How will they embrace Him if we are not proclaiming Him? So the main verb here is making disciples. 
And modifying that main verb is this issue of baptizing them. What is baptism? An act of obedience whereby the believer publicly gives testimony before others of what has taken place on the inside already, right? The new birth. So we are making disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This assumes that we're evangelizing, that we're telling people about Christ. They come to faith. They, in an obedient act, are baptized. And then what do we do? We teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We are teaching them. Teaching them modifies making disciples. What does that mean? That we are helping one another as believers grow into Christ-likeness. We are edifying one another so that we continually become more and more Christ-like. So that we are seeking to know, love, and understand God's Word all the more and see God in His Word and grow in the knowledge of Him. And as the Spirit of God works through the Word to convict us, to encourage us, to comfort us, we submit to His Word in loving obedience. See? So the process of discipleship means that we are evangelizing. We are telling people about Christ. When people come to faith, we are helping one another grow in Christ-likeness. This ongoing process of edification that takes place. There is certainly an individual component to this, right? Growing into Christ-likeness. We have a personal relationship with God. And we each are called to be pursuing Christ aggressively in our life. In this process of discipleship. But you know what? I think as Pastor Tim Carnes has been exhorting us on Sunday mornings, and as we see in the book of Ephesians, there is a tremendous corporate component to this, isn't it? Isn't there? We are so individualistic. How has Christ, the head of the church, the supreme ruler of the church, equipped His redeemed people for growth and maturity to take place? How has He done that? What's that? Through the Holy Spirit giving what? Christ giving gifts and gifted individuals to His body, right? We've been learning that from Ephesians chapter 4. The whole point is that the exalted Christ, the one who ascended on high, energizes growth and maturity in His body, the church. He is the one who energizes that growth in an amazing way. This is why He established the church, that we might become more and more like Christ to the glory of His great name. So the prominence of the church cannot be overstated. Unity and growth and maturity, beloved, is realized in the context of the redeemed community of believers. Do we see that? The church is not secondary. Yes, we have a personal relationship with God, by faith in Christ. Well, we are not called to live as isolated Catholic priests away from everybody, are we? We are to be amongst one another as much as possible. Somebody told me the other day, well, you're talking about third world countries. That's just a different place, man. You've got to understand that. We're not called, we can't possibly fulfill this here in America. I would say, uh-uh. I've seen many examples of this type of living amongst one another. Even here in America, it's possible. And God would never command us to do something that is impossible for us to do. Amen? Amen. It is. We just have to examine ourselves. 
And to a great degree, beloved, Kempis Hernandez included our selfish living. So Christ has given gifts and gifted people. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. And He Himself, that is Christ, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. For how long, Paul? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, singular by the way, Singular. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So that we become like Him. See? So Christ has given gifts and gifted people for a specific purpose, for a specific time, towards specific results. That we might become more and more like Him. I love the theme verse for the men's ministry. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. That we might present every man complete in Christ. And if you look in that context, who are we proclaiming so that every man is presented complete in Christ? We are proclaiming Christ. That's who we're proclaiming. So that each and every individual is presented complete in Christ. That Christ might be formed in that person. See? So this process of discipleship... It includes evangelizing. Telling people about Christ. Who He is. His demands. His purpose for why He came. Calling them to count the cost. And counting others, calling them to make other disciples. Brothers and sisters, this is our mission. This is very basic. Is it not? But it is a Strong, strong reminder for all of us. I've been very convicted in my own life that if this is the way my Lord lived, and this is the baton that the apostles took from Him, and if the other disciples, followers of Christ, those who were bearing witness in the book of Acts, that's the baton that they ran with, where am I at? Is that what I'm doing in my life? Am I walking as a faithful disciple of Christ? And am I proclaiming Christ so that others might come to know Him? Are we reproducing ourselves? Are we investing our lives into one another? That is my question and my challenge for us tonight. And I hope that as you walk away, you might really go back to some of these passages and really consider what are the implications for your life? Take a piece of paper tomorrow morning and jot down, how am I seeking to invest myself into others? Other disciples? How am I seeking to make Christ known? evangelizing. Because that's why you're here. If I'm not devoted to that on this earth, you know what? May God just take me now. I think that's where we need to come to. To count the cost. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much that You modeled and exemplified for us, Lord, Your mission. You did not call your apostles to a mission that you did not live out in your own life. Calling people to understand who you are. Telling people about your purpose for coming. Calling people to repent and believe and confess you as Lord and Savior. 
as the King, as the promised Messiah. I thank You that the apostles did not drop the baton. That they carried it, Lord. That they proclaimed Your person. That they told people about Your purpose. That You came and You lived a perfect life. You died a death that You did not deserve to die. A substitutionary atoning death on our behalf. That the apostles called people to repent of their sins, to turn from themselves, and to turn to You. And that many, many, many in the history of Your church have taken that baton and they have boldly proclaimed Christ to others. Lord, we're so thankful for that tonight. Lord, help us. You are a merciful and faithful High Priest. We all fall so short of being devoted to this great commission. Father, may we come and may we confess our deficiency in this area, Lord. And may You grant us the grace to be able to carry that baton boldly with great compassion, the compassion that You had proclaiming You to a lost world. May we be investing into one another's lives so that the world might see the way that we love one another and that they might ask, Lord, how is it possible that we could possibly love one another in that manner? And we might be able to tell them of the hope of Christ and His transforming work in our hearts and lives. May You help us to follow You faithfully for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.